service children in kindergarten through second grade are welcome to primary church if that's your desire. And for the rest of us, you can find the text, I believe, in your order of worship. I'm going to read um, the first four verses this morning to open us. So I say to you, hear the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that, that you would come and, and, and it would be uh, uh, that happy morn, that it would be just as happy now as it was uh, 2,000 years ago and will be uh, in the future. I pray that you would come make the gospel alive to us now. I pray for myself that you'd be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding, and in my mouth and in my speaking. Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, I have to first, um, I have to ask you to keep a secret for me, if you will. I have a lot of confidence in church that that'll happen. Um, Don't tell the first service that I changed up quite a bit. They can listen online. Uh, I'm kidding. I, I mean, I did change up, but I'm not kidding. They can listen online. Either way, the question is this, I, the, the biggest question I've gotten, you know, if you've been here for a while, we've been looking at the book of Revelation for almost a year, and the biggest question I've gotten as we've headed, heading, been heading into Advent season is just this, what, what does Advent have to do with Revelation? Does it have anything to do with Revelation, or are you just doing Revelation, to, you know, to finish it? Which, you know, it, it, if Revelation had nothing to do with Advent, honestly, at this point, I probably would be doing it just to finish it. We're close, we're like, you could see the end. But does it have anything to do with it? it? It does. If you, of course, have seen The Muppet Christmas, you'd know that. Right? You were waiting for that, I know, last week. I'm sorry to disappoint you. What do I mean by that? Remember The Muppet, the Muppet Christmas or some lesser version of it, or even, I guess, you could read the book. Remember, the whole thing is built around basically three categories, where Scrooge is as is, is solitary as is an oyster, a miserable old sinner. And how is he awakened? He's awakened by seeing his own past, his own present, and his own future. And at some point when he's awakened, remember what he says? He says, I will honor Christmas in my heart all the year long. I will live it in the past, and I will live it in the present, and I will live it in the future. That is what the book of Revelation has to do with Advent. Is that crickets I hear right now? Let me explain it to you. First of all, you have to understand what Advent is. Right? Advent is, we, the word we use, Advent, comes from the Latin Adventus, which is the Latin translation of the Greek word parousia, which means, that's a fancy way of saying, coming, the coming of Jesus. Most particularly, it refers to the second coming of Jesus. But in the second coming of Jesus, there, you also look back to the past to sort of celebrate and to, to contemplate the longing that Israel had for the Messiah to come. 
And so what Advent really is about is about, it's almost in some sense it's a photo negative of the Christmas carol because the Christmas carol shows Scrooge his life in the past and in the present and in the future. The difference between the Christmas carol and Advent is that in Advent we look at the life of Jesus, past, present, and future. And if you've been here, you remember what the whole purpose of the book of Revelation is, don't you? It's about Jesus' victory and that Jesus has won in the past, Jesus has won in the future, and Jesus is winning even now. You see, the, the, the whole series of Advent, the, the whole season of Advent, and the book of Revelation, in some sense, they fit right on top of each other. So there is a sense in which you have been celebrating Christmas all the year this year. Because in the book of Revelation, what you have is a look back at the past, a look back at the future, and a look past right now so that you could live, if you will, Christmas in your heart all the year so that, that all the time the gospel would affect your heart. And so when you consider the purpose of the book of Revelation and you consider uh, Advent, they actually go together quite well. And so uh, verses 21 through 28. You know, I know Jamie is going to be tired. He, he's tired of me saying this because every, you know, we meet in the back before the services. And I think every Sunday for almost, for about the past 50 Sundays, I've said, I think, I think this is the hardest text I've had to preach. I think this is the most difficult text in the book of Revelation to preach. This one is a little bit difficult because it's so big. In other words, we've gone through the book of Revelation, right? We've seen the first three chapters of the letters to the churches. And then you get into chapter four and John starts having these visions. You have the seven seals and the four horsemen. You have the, the seven trumpets. You have the seven bowls of God's wrath. Then you have the beast coming up out of the sea and the dragon. You have all of these things. And they culminate with this great white throne judgment where we're all held account for what we've, we've done or not done. We're, we're checked to see as our, our name in the book of life. And then after that, what happens? Well, that's where we are right now. That's, that's after the judgment, after all this stuff, what happens now in heaven or new heavens? What is going on? And so it's difficult because each verse that we're going to look at today, you could probably do a whole sermon on. In fact, you could probably do a whole Sunday school class on some of them, which in fact we are doing whole Sunday school classes on some of them in the next quarter. So you'll see what I mean. The, the best way that I know I've read to to make it through this text is I'm going to go through verse chapter 21 verses 1 through 8 verse by verse and as we go through you should keep track if I don't point it out to you what is there and what's not there in other words we're looking at new heavens new earth this vision of God all these things this new Jerusalem but what's important for you to know is you think about the ultimate future the consummated future with Jesus what is there in the new heavens and new earth and what is not there in new heavens and earth you'll see what I mean as we go through so let's just jump right in and verse 1. Notice it says this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So John, remember, he says, Then I saw, whenever he says, I saw, that's usually a vision of something symbolic. And so just like you can't take all of these completely and utterly literally, like we said about the, the number 1,000, the same thing. So John says, I saw this vision. And what's the vision he sees? He says, I saw new heavens and new earth. The old earth had passed away. Now what's important for you to get is in, in the New Testament, there are two words that can be used to communicate the word new in English. One word is neos. And the word neos means something that's, that's new temporarily. It, it, it's new, like, you know, you'd say, Tommy, is that a new watch you have? And I'd say, well, yes, it is new. I just got it. That's, it's new. 
But the word that's used here, and, and all, it's consistent throughout the passage, is the word kainos. That also means new, but it doesn't mean new, uh, new in, with regard to chronology or time. It means new with regard to quality, or it's qualitative. In other words, when John says, I saw new heavens and new earth, he's not necessarily saying that the old earth had just passed away and, the, and that it was burned up and evaporated and, and didn't exist anymore. But he's saying, I, see, I saw new heavens and new earth that was qualitatively different than the old heavens and old earth. Those things had passed away. And is he saying they, they were burned up in the fire? Or, we don't know. But what he's saying is what the future holds for God's people is a qualitatively different place than we have now. It's a new heavens and new earth. But also keep in mind that where we, you and I will live in the future. If you, ask, if you ask most people, if they're Christians at least, I think if you ask most people anyway, where they hope they're going to be, say, what's going to happen to you someday? Where are you, where are you going to spend eternity? Most people would say, well, I hope I spend it in heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that ultimately everyone who is trusted in Jesus and, and whose name is in the book of life will be, will be living on new heavens and new earth. In other words, uh, the, the body matters. It's sort of like this, you know, my, one of my favorite, well, I, all the Christmas specials are my favorites. I have different ones, di- the different parts that are favorites. Probably my favorite characters in all of the Christmas specials is, is Charlie in the Box, right? If you've ever been to my house, I actually have a Charlie in the Box with a sound sensor. So when you walk up to the front door, he says, hey! Who, may I ask, are you? If you come back again, he'll say, Halt! Who goes there? But the thing about Charlie that bothers me is he doesn't really get it. You see, if you look at the Island of Misfit Toys, what's the dream of every, uh, every toy on the Island of Misfit Toys? It's that they would be taken up, they, they would be delivered from the Island of Misfit Toys and taken to someplace better. The vision of the gospel, the vision that you have in the book of Revelation, is not that you will be just lifted up and taken someplace better. You will, temporarily. But the vision of the gospel is that all, you and I are all misfit toys. This whole world is one big fat island of misfit toys. And instead of being taken away to someplace better, underneath our very feet, if you will, the island will transform into paradise. Underneath our very feet, the island will be made into the way it's supposed to be and even better. Do you think about that ever? Most of us think I'm going to go to heaven, I guess. I'm going to sit there and sing all the time. I don't know. At some level, when we go, when, when all things are culminated and consummated, we will actually be in heaven and we will work. There will be no difference between work and worship. That it will all be one and the same. Remember when Adam was placed in the garden, God placed him in the garden to, to work it and to keep it. And in Hebrew, you can translate those same words as worship and obey. That someday your work will be worshipped in a redeemed earth. And what that says for us now is if the gospel is being realized in our lives right now, that even now your work is worship. Even now we're redeeming those things. And that's why I mentioned Sunday schools a while ago. Is a lot of our Sunday schools, a couple of them coming up, are going to have that, that focus to them. What does it mean to live the gospel out now? And what does it mean to redeem society now? What does it mean to redeem my work now? So that's, on one hand, you've got new heavens and new earth, but there's something, that, that's what's there. What's not there is the sea. That strike you as odd, that on one hand, the new heavens and new earth, but is there no water there? Remember, it's symbolic that the letter was written to encourage Christians who are being persecuted or who are, who are almost on the verge of compromising themselves. 
And you remember what the sea represented to the ancient Christians, the ancient peoples? The sea was a place of chaos. The sea was the place, in, at least in pagan mythology, where, the, where the, the evil came from and chaos. Very practically speaking, it was a place where the enemy would come in on ships to invade you. In other words, the sea to the ancient Near East invaded everything that was bad. And what you see first and foremost about this passage is just this. John says, I saw new heavens and new earth, and everything that is bad is not there. All the chaos, all the troubles, all the trials, all your enemies. Remember the dragon, the beast, and the beast number two. They, where did they come from? They came from the sea. Everything in their mind came from the sea. And what John is saying symbolically is those things will not be there. So what will be there? Well, he takes us to the next step. In some sense, he goes from macro to micro. And we see the New Jerusalem. Look at verse 2. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So we have Kainos, new, Jerusalem, um, dressed or, or adorned as a bride is adorned for her husband. So what is this place? Well, first of all, is it a new Jerusalem? Yes, it is. It says it right there, but it's new qualitatively, not temporarily. So it must stand for something. Also, why would Jerusalem be dressed as a bride for her husband? A few verses from now, we see that the church is dressed as a bride for her husband. And really what's probably going on, I think, is that New Jerusalem stands for the perfected church in heaven. If you look at the beginning of the book of Revelation, the beginning of the book is about seven very imperfect churches. They all struggle with something. They're all, they're all uh, struggling with compromise. They're, everything that has to do with them being outwardly faced is, is a troublesome thing to them. And at the end of the book of Revelation, that isn't the, pro the problem anymore. In fact, the church is there and it is dressed as a bride. We see that several places in the book of Revelation. We see it in Ephesians that the church is called the bride of Christ. And so now the church, which is the bride, which is the city, is the place where God will dwell. You see, in the Old Testament, God would dwell with them only in the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was where? In, Jeru in the temple. And where was the temple? It was in Jerusalem. But as we get further on into the book of Revelation, we have a problem come up if, you, if that's the only way things can work because further on in the book, there is no temple. And if there is no temple, where does God dwell then? Well, we find out in Corinthians and some other places that while Jesus was the temple, also the church is God's temple. The, the church is where God dwells and that's where he will dwell for eternity. And that takes you to verse 3. Notice verse 3. He says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And so what you have is new heavens and new earth, and if you, you sort of scope, telescope down in, you see this new Jerusalem dressed as a bride. I'm th I think that's the church. And then you have God saying, I will dwell with them. And in some sense, that is the overarching promise of the whole Old Testament and in the New Testament, for that matter. Remember when you go back to the book of Genesis, what, what's going on there? God creates Adam and Eve, and he fellowships with them. He's with them. And when they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that is broken. And remember, he comes to the garden to be with them. He says, Adam, where are you? But they were ashamed, and they hid from him, and eventually they were driven from the garden. That fellowship with God, that the relationship was broken. And once God decided, he said he was going to fix it in Genesis chapter 3, and the rest of the Bible takes us in that direction. But if you even look at the law, Leviticus, 
chapter 26. You see, God gave Israel all these laws, and he said, if you obey them, there will be curses, and if you, if you, uh, if you disobey them, there will be curses. If you obey them, there will be blessings. And the final blessing that he promises to Israel if they obey the law is this. In Leviticus 26, verse 11, he says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. That's a pretty big promise for Leviticus. Right? In other words, when you read the, the, the Old Testament law, what you expect to hear, what I expect, is that if God says he's going to dwell with them, you, you almost expect it's going to be sort of in this cloud of glory in the temple, that you know, maybe the priests can, can go near him, but no one else. Or Moses can go in and his face gets all glowy when he comes out. But that's not the ultimate promise. The ultimate promise is that, that I will make my dwelling among you and I will walk among you and be your God. He says, I will walk among you. Now here's the beauty of the gospel, is that part of God's promise has already been fulfilled. Welcome to Advent. Welcome to Christmas. Right? Remember we talked about when, I, when we did the millennium, if you were here, I talked about the fact that it's hard to get away from the fact that a lot of the stuff promised there is realized. In other words, it happened and is happening. So how has this promise that God will dwell among his people been realized? John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So how does God fulfill his promise to dwell among his people? He actually dwells among his people. You see, when we consider the, the, the New Testament, when we consider the season of Advent, we're looking forward to the promise when God will come and deliver his people ultimately and he will be with them forever. But when we look at it, we have to also look back and say that it's been realized. That Jesus came, that God and the person of Jesus came. What did he come to do? And that's where you get into passages you would expect for Advent. I think most people would expect Matthew chapter 1 prophet says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then Luke, remember when he talks to the angel, he says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And I'll be with them as their God and them as my people. That has begun. It began in the person of Jesus and it continues even now. And it's realized. What did God come and do? You see, in the future it says God will dwell with us and I assume God will be in all of his glory and all those who are caught up to heaven with him will be in their glory. But for, for me, an indignity, for example, is when you're driving down Benson and there's two lanes and the two people drive exactly the same speed, one mile under the speed limit and you can't pass them, you flip your lights on and off, and it doesn't matter, that's an indignity. It's not suffering, really. It's just like nothing's easy. Right? Jesus went through all of that. There's nothing that, he didn't, that, that we have gone through that he does not understand. So when God came to be with us the first time, he came to be with us, not as the exalted Lord of glory that everyone might just bow down. He came down as a suffering servant. You want to talk about something that, that's an indignity? How about being born in a barn? How about being raised, with, you know, born among the, the animals? 
being raised, it says, by, by a carpenter. Galatians says he's born in a low position. That he came in that form so that he ultimately could dwell with us in his glory in new heavens and new earth. And that takes us, what's, what are the benefits of God dwelling with us? They're all negative, by the way. It's in uh, verse 4. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So one of the benefits, what is there in, in the new heavens and new earth is God with his people. What is not there anymore? And you think when, when John writes what's not there, it's because it's so almost, it reminded me of Princess Bride. It's like, inconceivable. Remember that guy? What's heaven like? It's inconceivable. It's in, inconceivable. It, so it can only be defined negatively. I mean, think about it. How, what's heaven like? Well, I know there's no more tears there. There's no more mourning. Why? Because there's no more death. It's been completely conquered. There's no more pain. And between, if you took every person in this room, what you would find on any given day is some hodgepodge uh, mix of tears, death, pain, mourning, and crying. It just seems like our lot in, in life on one hand. On the other hand, the question is, is there any hope now? And the answer says right there, it says the former things have passed. That on one hand, we're, we're sort of compelled forward by the fact that there, these things won't be there. On the other hand, in some sense, now that if you've trusted Jesus, you have a different grid to look at these things. In other, in other words, you put different glasses on and see these things in a completely different light. You see, if you're, if you're not a Christian, you look at these tears and mourning and pain, and you say, why do these things exist? Why would a God let these things happen? If you are a Christian and you put those glasses on, you say, oh... God did allow these things to happen to Jesus. Jesus experienced tears. Jesus experienced pain. Jesus experienced suffering. Jesus experienced mourning. And, and on top of all that, Jesus experienced death. But he did all those things without deserving any of them. And so why do they exist now? On one hand, God is redeeming all things. We'll see that in a moment. On the other hand, uh, God took his own medicine in the person and work of Jesus. So let me, let's look at verse 5. What do I mean by God's redeeming things? Look at verse 5. He says, And behold, he was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now I want you to notice what is said here. He doesn't say, I am making all new things. In other words, he says, Behold, look. I'm making all new stuff. That's not what this says. He says, behold, I am making all things new. And it's important to catch that all of a sudden, John is not in the future or in the past. He's in the present when he speaks. And he says, I'm making all things new right now. What, is, what do we mean by that? What does it mean that God is making all things new? Well, on one hand, if you look at the, the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, remember 2 Corinthians 5, I believe it is? He said, if anyone is in Christ, there's new creation. In the Greek, it just says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, bam. It's like, it's just there. So Paul equates our own salvation, our own opening of our eyes, our own resurrection with new creation. So on one hand, it's begun. On the other hand, is, are all things being make, be made new? And I try to get my head around this, and immediately what came to mind, of course, was the same thing that came to every other man's mind in this room, was overhauling. I don't want to be sexist, 
I just don't know too many females besides my daughters that watch overhauling with me. Do you know what overhauling is? Overhauling? It's like the greatest show in the history of reality television. Basically, overhauling, imagine this. Imagine, you, you know, your father, you, imagine you're, you're 60 years old and your father gave you a, a, a Studebaker back in the day and for 40 years it's been sitting on blocks in your backyard. And everyone says, Dad, what are you going to do with that Studebaker out in your backyard? And you say, well, someday I'm going to restore that. Well, what overhauling does is your family calls and they say, you know, we'd like to be involved in this. They come and they pull some kind of prank and they act like your car was stolen and you, the father, almost always sheds tears or becomes indignant. They want to, what happened to my car? This junk that is sitting in their yard on blocks that will never work. And they take that car and, they, and in one week's time, about a, a team of 10 or 12 people work on it and they make it better than new. They don't restore it to mint condition. They make it better than new. I mean, they put every, all the high-speed gizmos, they put huge, everything that you could ever imagine in the Studebaker. And then they have what they call the reveal. Dad, we need to go to the police station. And you go, and you know, Dad goes, and it's really a warehouse. And you go to the warehouse, and the doors open, and Dad sees his Studebaker or his Impala or whatever it was, and he just breaks down into tears. Why? I've been overhauled, right? That's what you're supposed to say. In other words, he's looking at this car that in reality he wanted to be, to be renovated, but he, at the end of the day he had no power or really inclination to make it happen, and someone else has taken it and made it not only good, they've made it better than new. When God says, I'm making all things new, that is what's happening in the gospel. That he is taking something that you and I have absolutely no power over, namely our own, our, our own lives, our own ability to be good all the time, and he is making it new. He changes our hearts, but he's doing that to all of creation so that someday all of creation will be made new. Someday all of creation will be overhauled. In other words, creation matters now. The things that are going on around us matter now. We can't just say, ah, it's going to burn someday. I remember in college I used to say that, ah, it'll burn I don't know if it's going to burn. Maybe God's going to make it new and bigger and better than it was. And because of that, we're called to be stewards of the things. We're called to be stewards of the environment. We're called to be stewards of the things that God has given us. All of these things. Because God is not just going to replace it, but he is in fact renovating it. And we get to be part of that even now. As we move on, I'm going to do verse 6 last. Who is there? Look at verse uh, 7. He says in verse 7, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So what heritage is he talking about? Well, on one hand, it's the things that we've just seen, that God is going to dwell with them, and, and New Jerusalem and all that. But if you remember the letters to the churches, each of the letters to the churches had promises at the end of them. He would, John would say, To him who conquers fill in the blank, right? To him who conquers, I will give uh, access to the tree of life. I will give access. He will be a pillar in the new temple or he will participate in New Jerusalem or his name will be in the book of life or he will reign with Christ. What's most interesting here, not just the culmination of all those promises, I think, but what we call sonship. What do I mean by sonship? Notice what the verse says there. It says, to the one who conquers, he'll have this heritage. I'll give these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That language is almost a, a word for word from, uh, I think it's Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, where God promises this covenant to David, and he says, one of your children will be on the throne forever. I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's true, but notice who is the inheritor of that promise now. 
It's God's people. And it's not, by the way, it's not sons or daughters. Some places in the Bible it says sons or daughters. Here, sonship is the word that matters. Being a son is all that matters, no matter what your gender is. Right? Remember in the ancient Near East, the only person that had any rights or privileges and got all of the inheritance was the firstborn son. And what we're seeing here is that God says, for those who conquer, those who hang in, who trust me, to them, they will be sons. In other words, every right and privilege that Jesus has, they will have. The way I look at Jesus is the way I will look at them. And of course, that's the way God looks at you right now. If you've trusted Jesus, what that means is Jesus has taken all of your sin and given you all of his righteousness. And so what God sees you as now, regardless of your gender, is as if you were a firstborn son in the ancient Near East, which means you get everything. But you're also responsible for everything. Who is not there? Cowards and liars. Now what's interesting, I mean there's more things in between there, of course. But cowards and liars aren't there. Most commentators think, you remember, up to, up to this point, everyone's been judged, right? The, the um, people who have gone against God and were unbelievers and all that kind of thing, they've been judged. Birds have come and eaten their flesh, all of that. Why is this put in, it, put, put in here? It seems a little bit negative. Well, part of it is because, remember, the church that was reading it was still in existence. It's not, it's not saying, here's what the future is. It's a warning to people in church. Everything that's listed on this list is something that the churches struggle with. What does a coward do? A coward caves in instead of stands up for the gospel or any other thing, but in this case, the gospel. A coward, when they become pressure, they sort of they back away from the community, they throw people under the bus. Basically, they preserve what they want at all costs. Same thing with a liar. A liar doesn't tell the truth, or a liar spins the truth, or a liar... Uh, tells part of the truth but not the whole truth in order to get what they want and if you read through the list I mean in verse 8 it says who's not there cowardly the faithless detestable murderers sexually immoral sorcerers idolaters liars their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is second death now here's the good news about that verse I'm always you know I'm an optimist I'm always trying to pull something good out of here the good news about this is if you remember um, 2 Corinthians 6, I, I don't know if I put that on there, 1 Corinthians 6. Paul lists, he, he lists these, a whole bunch of things and he says these kind of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's basically a similar list to this, but a little bit longer. And after you read about the greedy, the adulterous, and all these things, the last thing he says is this, such were some of you. In other words, we read these lists and we can become guilty and convicted. And if you're guilty and convicted, you probably ought to be on one hand. On the other hand, do you remind yourself of the gospel? That's not who I am anymore. I'm not like that anymore. Jesus is changing me. He's making me new just like he's making all creation new. How do I know that? How can I be sure of that? And that takes me to verse 6. That's what I switched up. Notice in verse 6, it says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. So a couple things we see here. The first is this phrase, It is done or it is finished, has come up a few times in Revelation. It's also in John when Jesus is dying on the cross. He says, It is finished. I'm done. Completely done. So God's work is done. Why is it done and how is it done? It's done in and through his sovereignty. Notice he said it on the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's an uh, ancient Near Eastern saying that the God is 
the Alpha, the A, and he's the Z, and everything in between. He's the beginning, and he's the end, and he's everything in between. So everything in between, he's also in control of, which makes what he says next that much more uh, odd, because the one who is in charge of everything, the one who is the beginning and the end and everything in between, notice what he says. He says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Why does he say that? See, in, in the ancient Near East, right, water was in the desert. Everyone needed water. Water was refreshing. Water, water was life-giving. All of these kinds of things. And what's interesting here is in that one verse, you have a picture of what Advent is all about, especially the, the nativity, especially the incarnation of Jesus. And what is that? It's that the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end, the one who's in charge of all things, became a baby ultimately became a man, and he became thirsty so that you and I could become filled. In other words, he says to, to the thirsty, you can come and I'll, I'll, I'll satisfy your thirst and I'll give you the water of life without payment. You can't pay anything for it. Why? Because Jesus has paid for it. That you and I can be full, you and I can receive, can drink from the water of life because Jesus himself has become thirsty. And I know some of you are thinking, I don't know what word he's talking about. Remember at the cross, Jesus said a bunch of stuff at the cross, but one of the most intriguing things to me has always been his one statement where he says, I thirst. Of course you're thirsty. I mean, he could have said anything. Why did he say, I thirst? And because what was happening at the cross is that the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end, was thirsty so that you and I could be filled. And the only way you can drink from the water of life is to take it because someone else has paid for it. You get it without cost, but Jesus did not give it without cost. His life was given for it. But on the other hand, he gives it to us graciously. The question is, will you receive it? I didn't tell this story last service either, but for some reason it kept coming to mind. It's the first time I ever saw Saving Private Ryan. It took me about five years before I was willing to go to those kind of movies to keep me up at night for some time after. And remember, Save and Private Ryan is basically about these rangers in World War II who go to visit or, or go to, to, to help this private named Ryan. And they're to rescue him and bring him back, and they get to, to the place where they're going, and Private Ryan says, I'm not going to leave the rest of my buddies until this battle is over that was impending. And they fight the whole battle, and as they fight the whole battle, almost everyone is killed. Tom Hanks is the, the captain who's leading this uh, platoon of rangers, I think it's a squad rather. But at any rate, at the end, Tom Hanks is dying. Ryan has been rescued. And if you remember that what he says to Private Ryan, he looks at Private Ryan and says, earn this. Oh, that made me mad. Remember, and then it, then it pans to Private Ryan as an old man and he's crying as he's at this graveyard. Why? Because he knows he could never earn it. Now, what made me upset about that movie is if Tom Hanks or Steven Spielberg, whoever wrote it, was really a ranger, the ranger motto for the past 200 plus years is sua sponte. I volunteered for this. In other words, when Ryan came to, what do you want me to do? What Tom Hanks should have said is sua sponte. You don't owe me anything. I volunteered for this. And so the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Advent, the beauty of even this passage is that the Alpha and the Omega actually volunteered to pay the price that you and I couldn't pay. He volunteered to take the punishment that we couldn't bear. He volunteered to bear the wrath that you and I couldn't stand. And the question is, do you believe that on one hand? On the other hand, if you do believe it, does it encourage you? It should. Think about that. Let me pray for us.